The Guardian. And there is a commitment on behalf of both the government and the unions to seeing these talks through. And these talks will continue this month and later into July. So it is all the more disappointing that there are a minority of unions who seem hell-bent on premature strike action before these discussions are even complete. To justify strike action, they are misrepresenting the government's position. taking strike action on June the 30th. Unison should be inspired by this. This is our fight too. By fighting against the cuts, alongside the other public sector unions, alongside the NUT, the PCS, the UCU, we can show the Tory government real resistance and bring down the coalition. Next week, Unison, the largest public sector trade union, will start the most sustained campaign of industrial action since the general strike of 1926. And it won't be alone. As the spending cuts start to bite, trade unions across the country are planning strike action. But is this the best way to achieve what you want in the 21st century? Are there more effective negotiation techniques that will do less damage to the economy and ensure the public stay on side? I'm Hugh Muir, and for this week's Guardian Focus podcast, we'll be examining the perfect storm that's about to hit the British economy. We'll find out how strikes work, why they succeed or fail, and with even Ed Balls warning the unions not to walk into a Tory trap, we'll ask why new laws are needed to regulate the ever-tempestuous relationship between the bosses and the workers. And we start in Manchester. It's the Unison National Delegate Conference, and I'm here to ask members why they're willing to strike. But first, it's the big event of the day. General Secretary Dave Prentice is about to give his big speech. The conference, until last Friday, how many of us had even heard of Danny Alexander? The lightning conductor for the Tories. Danny, you've been hung out to dry. Danny, you've been had. And to our friend, our friend and advisor, our new advisor, Ed Bulls, I'd like to say on behalf of every single person in this hall today, when we want your advice, Ed, we'll ask for it. I'm with Karen Jennings now. She's the Assistant General Secretary of Unison. So if it's to be a strike, is that a decision that you would take lightly? I'm sure, sure it's not. It's absolutely not a decision that we take lightly at all. Uh, the trouble is we're in a position where the government have been in talks with us. We've been going through those discussions with integrity, um, but uh, the government, through Danny Alexander, has made an announcement, an emphatic amount, announcement about the way forward. So he has come out of the process and left us with nowhere else to go. To what extent is the strategy dictated by the members and to what extent by the leadership? when you get to a, uh, something as serious as the strike, to what extent is it you saying to the, the membership, we need to go on strike now, or them saying to you, we're out of options, the strike is the only way forward? We, we can't go on strike without our members' approval, without our members sanctioning it. Uh, industrial relations law in this country requires us to ballot our members. How many of them have to vote for a strike for it to be a legitimate strike? Because you'll have heard the arguments about saying that too many... 
too many uh, episodes of industrial action go ahead with too few members having voted for it? Well, what we need to have is a 50% outcome from the number of people that respond to the the actual ballot itself. Often that is very low, isn't it? It can be low. Sometimes it's high. It just depends on the numbers that are answering. The the initiative that Unison is taking, it takes us about 17 weeks to go through the whole legal process. And during that time and now, we're building up the profile about what's actually happening. The public are recognising that this is just a step too far. You're waiting for the bank statements, now afraid I'm with John Gray now. John, where are you from? I'm from East London. I work for a housing association. If it comes to it and it's to be strike action, are you up for that? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, um, I have been on strike in the past and it's not an experience I particularly like or enjoy. As a last resort, as uh, when everything else has failed, which it looks like it clearly will, will fail, there's no resort other than to strike action and strike action can achieve effects but um, this 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 um, issue of the pensions it's uh, it's to pay for the bankers crisis and I've got to say you know, why should um, ordinary working people pay for the mistakes done by the very rich if people weren't angry about this and um, then no the strike wouldn't work you're talking about four million people um, dependent on the local government pension scheme alone and there's going to be the millions of active um, payers who want the pension scheme to survive and will strike and they will strike smart and clever and effectively um, until at the end of the day we get some sort of compromise acceptable to both sides. My name is Anne McCormack. When it comes to the end of the negotiations and our union calls us out on strike, I'll be there at the front. Will you be looking, not that you're looking forward to it, but how will you feel about having to do that? We'll lose money. I don't know if people realise that when we go on strike, our employers stop our wages and we also lose that amount of pension as well. So for every day we're on strike, we lose a day's pension. And that, that is not to be sniffed at. Hello, my name is Monica Hurst. I'm um, a practice educator and a nurse and a health visitor. Have you been on strike before? I did, I did a day's strike, yes. yes. And I was actually a frontline staff nurse then. What do you remember of that? Was that uh, as an experience, as a personal experience? I was a district nurse at the time. The support we got from the patients was was amazing. And I mean, actually, one of the patients made placards for the nurses, and and it was there was a bit of division within the nursing teams because you've got RCN who have a no strike um, policy, and you have different unions working together. But it was there. Were, it was it was a difficult time. It was a very difficult time. I'm with Mike Davy. You you work for Lewisham Hospital. That's right. Yeah. I see your badge. Don't get angry. Get active. Yeah. Does being active also include going on strike? I, I think I think at the end of the day, re- regrettably, one has to reserve that as a, a as a last course of action in some respects. Obviously, we'd like to you know negotiate our way, uh, you, you know, in all times. But there comes a moment in time where the people on the other side of the table no longer want to negotiate and I, I, I fear by one or two statements made by cabinet ministers and um, people in the current government uh, and we could be heading down that road but negotiations are still currently going on. And is that a power that you think the workers always have to have? 
Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think you have to have that right because it is the workers' right. It's the workers that actually create wealth and actually create that situation whereby we can have a welfare state and you, you know that society exists as it is. So I think ultimately we have to have that sanction. A strike to me and, and a lot of other people signifies a failure in negotiations. You have to have that final sanction there. If you don't, then you might as well just roll over and. You know, we might as well all just take whatever is being given to us, I guess. I'm with James Anthony now. James, tell me about yourself. Uh, I work as a nurse in Birmingham. Uh, I'm a, a unison activist. Is there a lot of fear about the idea of the strike itself? Because it's, uh, in some ways, a scary proposition. And, it, of course, it doesn't always work. For us in the health service, you know, the last national strike action was you know, I think back in the 80s and isn't something that people are used to um, and would be a massive decision uh, for us to take. I mean I, I work clinically uh, so obviously as a nurse we've got a responsibility to our patients but equally I think people understand that we've got a responsibility uh, to ourselves and our colleagues and defending our futures so it's going to be a difficult choice for people to make uh, when we go out and ask them if they're willing to take strike action. How do you do that? How do you go on strike and keep public sympathy? Because, of course, you're a nurse and, and, and you almost automatically get that public sympathy. But don't you risk that, a, uh, that you think a strike risks losing that for you? We'll maintain uh, key numbers to make sure that basic safety is protected. We certainly won't be closing A&E departments or anything like that because not only would that damage the rep you know, reputation and sympathy, we're, we're all here as public service workers. Uh, the thing that we want to do is deliver a good service to the public. We just expect decent pay and pensions and to be treated with respect in return. Unison members plotting their strategy in Manchester. Of course we have been here before. Mrs Thatcher hated the unions, the unions hated Mrs Thatcher, but it became a defining mission of her premiership to take them on and beat them. Some say David Cameron's in much the same position, and I asked Dick Tracy, a minister in the Thatcher government, what he remembers about tussling with the unions all those years ago. Well, I mean, of course, there were very many more union members in those days, and we used to see general strikes or practically general strikes across the board. My time before I actually was in, the, uh, in, in Parliament, in, in, the, in the government, we, we, we saw the dock strikes back in the 60s. And then the next thing we saw was, uh, well, particularly the miners going on strike. Uh, and that was, I think, the stage when the Thatcher government needed to do something about it because, of course, it, 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 was, it was crippling power stations and, and, and crippling the whole operation um, of industry and the lights went out and all, all the rest of it. And I think that was when, well, the public were certainly telling politicians, you need to do something about it. And, of course, uh, that is when the trade union labor relations legislation uh, was brought in, which which stopped all the flying pickets and all the um, you know <clears throat> one union coming out in sympathy with another one. Is there just a straightforward philosophical problem here? Can you have uh, a radical um, conservative-led administration and strong unions at the same time, or is that just uh, an impossibility to, for those two to coexist? Well, I, I think you can. I think you can have s sensible unions. I mean, wasn't it Simon Jenkins said in in your newspaper the other day that the sign of maturity in society is that we don't go go to war constantly to solve problems i mean uh, now uh, one hopes that people will be able to sit down at the table and talk these things through and i think that's what the public believe is to be the case you know they uh, th this this country 
probably is still um, more ripe with the um, you know this sort of class warfare than other countries. Um, the Germans recently, the the, the workers decided to take uh, a pay cut rather than seeing their industries shut down. And it, I mean, it does seem to me that all of us have, have got to um, you know be prepared. After all, in the, you know you know the public sector of uh, local government and so on, uh, that there has been a pay freeze for some time and, and it, it, you know all of these things have got to be talked through before actually calling a strike and then as i say in the case of the transport strikes in london costing 48 million pounds a day to the london economy which has got to be damaging overall the government seemed to have been committed a, a, a few u-turns the unions look at that and think this is a situation where we can actually win do you think they can win I don't, honestly, because I think, you know, public opinion, uh, which is the, the majority, is a, against uh, unions striking at this time, when, you know, the country is trying to recover from the, the state, which, I mean, you know, let's face it, Labour politicians blame the bankers and the bankers of the world, but it also... Uh, I think one's got to be quite honest about it. The Labour government was pretty weak in the steps it took. But now we're in this this state in the economy, uh, then there's got to be some very serious thought given to how, how we um, can get out of it. And we, we mustn't be prevented by irresponsible strikes. Richard Tracy, a Tory member of the London Assembly, who won't be going on strike anytime soon. And joining me to talk through some of the issues raised so far is The Guardian's industrial editor, Dan Milmo, Gail Cartmail, the Assistant General Secretary of the Union Unite, and from the Confederation of British Industry, Neil Carberry. He's the Director of Employment there. Hello to you all. Hello. Hi. Uh, Gail, let me start with you. Um, some people will say that in, in this day and age, strike action is a bit of a, an outmoded thing to, to, to be threatening, but you clearly think that it's a necessary thing. Just give me a sense of why that is. Well, it's the last resort. Um, all democracies enable working people to to withdraw their labour uh, in protest uh, against injustices. Um, so that's an inalienable right uh, in ILO conventions, uh, and it's applied in most uh, free and democratic countries. But let me stress, it's a last resort. Um, it's when talks break down that trade unions resort to it. And make no mistake, the uh, anti-union legislation around strike ballots is so onerous um, that it uh, is quite obviously uh, very often the intention by employers to use it to take us to high courts, but the high courts don't resolve the disputes, nor do they uh, mediate. And so, you know, it is a downward spiral. So, of course, strike action is the last resort. Our strong preference is to negotiate um, uh, 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 an outcome that's acceptable to all parties. Of course, that's what we do. If we look at the situation with British Airways, um, there were 22 days of strikes last year. Um, did you feel in that case that there really was no option? Well, we had a, an incredibly uh, macho management the moment um, Willie Walsh was off the scene, productive conversations took place at the highest level. And you saw yesterday um, a, a good outcome has been achieved. We have a, an ongoing dispute at Southampton City Council where we have a similarly uh, machismo management um, who are trying to make their name off the back of this dispute. Uh, and, you know, really... 
what, what we have found in Southampton City Council is that massively public opinion is with us and with our members. Let me bring in Neil Carberry here. You can't speak for BA or for Southampton City Council, I know, but uh, generally, do you think the legislation as it is um, needs to be looked at? Because many people are saying that, and um, Dick Tracy said that to me earlier. Well, I think the, um, it's important to emphasise um, that every dispute is different, uh, has a different set of management, management and a different set of employees. So it's important to, uh, when we think about the legislation, think about it very much in terms of um, industrial action as a last resort. We, ver- uh, we would echo the sentiment that the most important thing to do in any situation is to get around the table and discuss um, what is happening. Within that framework, though, we do favour some changes to industrial uh, action law based around really the fact that the employment relationship has changed in the last 20 years. And what we'd like to do is to ensure that when strikes happen, they are happening because the a significant chunk of the workforce is putting their hand up and saying, yes, this is the right thing to do, not just not voting, having strikes voted through on a a large percentage of a small turnout and then expecting people who haven't voted to come out on strike and lose a day's pay. Neil, couldn't that be addressed by making it easier to vote? Because a part of the uh, union uh, legislation about conducting ballots makes it incredibly difficult uh, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to undertake the balloting process. So, um, you know, I'm with you. Let's get more people involved. So let's make it easier to vote. Uh, and we'd get a much higher turnout. If you look at the turnout of the BA acceptance uh, by our members of the deal, it was a massively high turnout with a very high endorsement of the negotiated deal. But that was because it was a ballot that we controlled, a consultative ballot of our members. It didn't have to go through the rigorous uh, uh, loop, uh, you know, the rigorous uh, system of the uh, industrial action ballot process. So wouldn't it be better to make it easier for people to vote? But but you know why uh, those processes were put in place in the first place, and they're still valid today, which is we we had, used to have experience uh, before the current legislative framework was put in place of ballots with um, people who were no longer union members voting, people who'd left the company voting, um, site, work sites that had closed years before. Uh, yes, and now we fall down on technical difficulties. And that's the problem. The problem is uh, getting more people involved. I'm all for that. So uh, maybe that's where the uh, debate should be framed. Rather than setting up even greater hurdles, reducing even further the numbers of our members that, uh, uh, that we can involve in these uh, decisions, which are important decisions. Let me bring in Dan Milmo here. Dan, in Germany, in places like Germany, you really have industrial action. Why is it so different there? I mean, you think of the recent events at a company like Siemens where the uh, workers agreed to work on reduced hours to help the company through a rough period and then uh, when things improved um, they, they would come back. I mean aren't agreements like that uh, a more reasonable way to proceed? Yes yeah, certainly in Germany it seems much more consensual. It seems that um, trade union representatives have um, 
much more uh, consistent and high-profile representation uh, in companies. Uh, it's called, well, I mean, it's a, it's a very new labour phrase, but it's known as a sort of stakeholder involvement, and that's much more visible uh, in Germany. And um, the labour laws uh, allow for companies to essentially park employees during uh, times of hardship, as we saw uh, in 2008, 2009 in the uh, car industry, and then bring them straight back on the normal terms and conditions as soon as the upturn comes, for instance. So, I mean, that kind of flexibility would probably head off quite a lot of disputes in the UK, for instance. But we Neil. did that in the motor industry. We did that. We did that during the recession. During the recession, loads of our people uh, were reduced hours. Uh, we had some support from government to uh, backfill uh, Nissan, for example, uh, upskilling so that, um, you know, we use the time productively uh, to improve performance. So, you know, we do that and we did that during uh, the worst part of the recession across the private sector. The difference between our, uh, our members in the UK and their counterparts in Germany, of course, is that um, it's a lot more ex expensive to sack a German worker. Uh, UK workers are the easiest to sack across Europe, the cheapest to sack, uh, which is why so many jobs uh, uh, are lost uh, to our economy. So, you know, those factors have to be uh, taken into account. Across Europe, um, trade unions are in uh, dismay at the Section 188 provision in UK law, which defines the master-servant relationship perfectly. In UK law, employers can tear up a collective agreement by issuing a Section 188 notice of dismissal, 90 days notice, and re-engage on entirely new terms. Uh, uh, and if you don't accept those terms, you're legitimately sacked. Now, we're challenging that uh, uh, in the courts, but currently our UK uh, colleagues can't understand it. They cannot understand uh, why we have such poor protection uh, in the UK for our workforce. And for that reason, of course, we do lose jobs. And Neil Carberry, we could do this another way, why don't we? Well, there's two factors there, and I think we have to tease them apart. Um, the first thing is, um, and where I'd be in in agreement is we had a really positive experience in the private sector during the recession working with employees um, both in unionized workplaces and in non-unionized workplaces where you can achieve similar things just by making sure you're, you're involving employees in reasonable ways in terms of managing the downturn to keep the company going, keep the company healthy in position for the recession, and most importantly, to preserve jobs. And that's why we saw a 6% fall in economic output, but only a 2% uh, fall in employment, which is a, a, actually quite a remarkable uh, performance. And a lot of that is down to employees and employers working together. And there is certainly a sense that the British disease that we talked of uh, 20, 25 years ago of poor management is much rarer now. Um, management is very focused, and our own employment trend survey showed this this week on what the right employee engagement strategies are for the business. So I think that is is something where we've made some progress towards um, a really positive employment relationship. On the on the subject of the on the subject of the law, um, we need to be clear here. I mean, this is a a long-standing uh, union business argument, but it is just true that Britain does not have the problem with an insider-outsider labour market that many Central European countries have because it is easy. It, what it, do you mean it, by that? Essentially, 
while it is while it is certainly true that there are more employment protections stopping restructuring and redundancy in uh, parts other parts of Europe it is also significantly more more difficult because of that to attract new jobs and a new investment into those economies now on well hang on a moment if Siemens is making a decision uh, now as it ha- you know as it does about where it's going to manufacture something at a time uh, of uh, uh, economic difficulty and um, Siemens makes the decision uh, to uh, back its workforce in Germany it just does and you know that Neil so you know um, the scorecard is um, very much balanced against the UK based workforce that's a reality and it's well I, I look at, I, I look at the investment that was made in BMW, by BMW in Oxford uh, just last week the investment that's the fantastic yes, new investment, investment and very good and, industrial and, relations at BMW well, yeah absolutely but if you go and talk to these foreign direct investors in the UK they will tell you that one of the reasons why they find the UK attractive is that it is easier to, to, to try something in the UK, to try a new product, to try a new, uh, a, a and, new, a, and a new business. And sack workers uh, if you need to. Well, because you can bring workers in on a range of flexible contracts that you you can invest. And if it takes off, fantastic. The, your first workers on flexible contracts are per, become you, permanent you've cited, and you build a business. You, yeah, you've cited a union. I mean, I think your, your arguments aren't stacking up, Neil, if you don't mind me pointing that out. You're contradicting yourself. In in uh, in the BMW in Oxford, that plant, we've got an uh, excellent uh, trade union relationship, very high trade union density, really good uh, 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 negotiation uh, uh, that's ongoing. Um, at where where it unravels uh, is, uh, quite frankly, where you get the kind of machismo gun to your head sort of stance. Uh, and all of the poor practice that's allowed for in UK law is brought out uh, in a very unhelpful and uh, 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 destructive way. So, you know, it, it isn't the case, going back to the public sector, that our people don't negotiate concession bargain. They do. Well, um, not, but well, in certain situations, uh, local authorities just aren't interested. I they should, don't want to hear well, look, the proposals put by the workforce. Can I, can just I, can not I, uh, involved. Can I just bring Dan Mimo in here? Because... Uh, and tell me where the public are on this, um, because you, you hear, um, we're hearing two sides of an argument. But, of course, in any dispute, um, public opinion is really important. Um, where do you think the public, are, how, how do they, when they hear these comments about possible strikes, how do they react to that? Well, I think uh, one of the problems is that the uh, uh, public debate on uh, trade unionism and its role in society appears at times to be stuck in the 70s and 80s um, in terms of the the terminology used. Uh, we just had a debate, uh, a mini debate internally a couple of days ago about the continual use of the word militant and whether that's appropriate to be applied to a union that happens to go on strike every now and again. Um, is using your right to strike a militant act because, you know, that word originated in uh, a sort of political phenomenon in the late 70s and mid-80s that's now gone. So I think there's a general issue with the public's education as to what trade, unu- trade unionism is about and particularly what it does when we're not reading about it on the front pages because um, it seems like uh, prior to uh, British Airways and uh, um, apart from a few imbroglios during the 2000s that trade unionism uh, in the UK got along very well with the government and with the private sector and it seemed a very constructive relationship. Of course, one thing the public always wants to know is that the union leaders are actually representing 
the, 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 the views of their members. And so we then go to that debate about the law and whether or not um, the, 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 the voting procedure is as it should be. Gail? Well, um, yes. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, unlike the top FTSE 100, or indeed, unlike any chief executive in a town hall, um, the leaders of trade unions, of course, are required to be elected uh, and re-elected on a five-year basis. Um, so... Uh, you know, I, I think that um, is quite interesting. And I, by the way, do uh, find the use of the term militant quite laughable. And I don't think the public um, are gullible. I, I recall watching uh, little interviews, I think it was on Sky, uh, with parents and carers leaving schools being asked about the teacher's action on the 30th of June. And yes, it's inconvenient. I'm a parent. I can remember what it's like when schools unexpectedly close. But there wasn't a single person that didn't say they think teachers deserve to be treated decently and fairly and that they supported uh, the teaching staff. So, but ju Just this week, know, the Daily Mail described Christine Blower, the uh, head of the NUT, as a militant union boss. Do you not think that has, much effect, that has an effect on the public? Well, no, I don't. I, I don't. I think uh, it patently does not. I, I take you back to the Southampton situation. And um, bins uh, uh, aren't being emptied. Uh, the traffic uh, wardens uh, are taking action, as are the people on the toll uh, bridges. Sorry, can I just uh, interrupt? The, sorry, can I just say though that I was at the Unison conference yesterday, and um, the amount of times that the Sun and the Mail were mentioned by people speaking at this conference with a real sense of resentment because there's a there's a reflexive effect here. Their friends, their colleagues, um, people in the social circle are clearly reading the Sun and the Mail and saying, what on earth are you doing? You're a bunch of militants. There is a danger, isn't there? There is a danger that um, if you keep repeating, uh, uh, you know, the kind of propaganda that, you know, that it does have an effect. But I'm looking at facts and facts of the poll in Southampton where it's very visible, you know, <laughs> you know, dust coll dustbin collection is very visible. It affects you and me, doesn't it? Yeah, and but the, the facts, facts also... are that 70% of the people polled by the Southampton Echo that has run consistently anti-Unite and Unison copy, the facts are that the a huge majority, uh, by two to one, three to one, uh, supported the workers, not the council. Now, you know, that's, that's an important poll because it's not theoretical, it's real and it's, it took place in the midst of that dispute. So, you know, I do think that's uh, interesting, don't you? Yes, well, it, it is interesting, but um, I think it's going to be a lot easier for the public to uh, make a, uh, an objective judgment uh, on <clears throat> on the role of trade unions and whether they warrant the support of the public. If there's if some of the sting uh, and the fire is taken out of the discourse on both sides, because again, yesterday at Unison, I heard a lot of references to hedge fund managers, millionaires in government, and there might be one or two millionaires dotted around in the Conservative and Lib Dem parties. But it, to me, it felt like that was missing the point, mm. which is you know, know a proper you debate mean, about public sector I, pensions. I, the right yeah. to no, but, 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 no, but isn't that inevitable at a conference? I mean, you know, and but that's that's the, the big opportunity for publicity for the union, and uh, it seems like both. Both sides slip into the, and perhaps the press encourage this, I'm definitely not saying we're angels on this, to slip into old uh, battlefield positions. Yeah, I, th I think it's important that we grasp hold of this point, which is you know, ultimately uh, what we're both saying here is that in all of these cases it's usually better to talk than walk. And in 
in terms of where we are in the public sector, that's certainly true. And uh, as has already been mentioned, negotiations on the uh, pensions side start uh, uh, will uh, kick off again next week. The the issue, I think, is that in terms of where the unions are positioned, um, making sure that some of the heat is taken out of it. Because I think post-Hutton, um, it is difficult to argue the case that the current structure and setup of the pension schemes does not require review, as some union leaders have, not by no means all. Um, and within that framework, to come to the table and discuss it with the uh, the government, I'm sure would be is the productive and right thing to do. We haven't got much time left, but can I just move just quickly to the politics of this? Because um, Ed Balls was saying earlier in the week that uh, warning the unions almost not to fall into the Tory trap. Does it make life more difficult for you, Gail, if the, you don't feel you have the complete support of the Labour hierarchy? Well, I don't know um, that we don't have the support uh, of the hierarchy. Uh, Ed Balls made a comment. Um, what's interesting is that what we negotiated uh, with the last Labour government on pension reform that uh, kicked in 2007-2008 is regarded by the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee in a recent report to be greatly undervalued by the current government. It's the current government I'm negotiating with, not Ed Balls. One thing that interests me is um, what happens when a strike is imminent and how that's handled by the company that might be facing that disruption. You covered the BA dispute. Just give us a sense of how they plan for the eventuality of a strike. Well, um, the Trade Union and Labour Relations Act 1992 uh, is uh, is a document, uh, is a piece of legislation that uh, gives good lawyers and companies that can afford to hire good lawyers uh, many opportunities to uh, uh, get it persuade the High Court to rule a uh, strike vote invalid and that is indeed what British Airways did from multiple angles uh, uh, in the end during the long-running cabin crew dispute which lasted 18 months and had I mean several High Court rulings that struck down Unite on, on various um, t- taking in various parts of the 1992 Act. So the legal tool was a very potent one um, yeah. what, what, other, what, what other weapons were used? Um, in the, in the B, uh, primarily in the cabin crew dispute, it was the the 1992 act. I think there's also referring to the earlier conversation. There is the there is the media war, um, and this refers back to um, you know phrases like militant being wheeled out in the 1970s. And unfortunately, there's still a strong memory of those. And I think um, Unite got slightly caught up in that. Um, but the, the the main tool uh, for companies at the moment is the 1992 Act. What BA has done, other companies have followed in. You don't read about it in the press, but there are many, many of these cases going on behind the scenes, particularly with transport companies and transport unions, where they're quiet, transport unions are quietly being defeated or being persuaded not to push ahead with a vote that could be invalid and therefore strike action that could be invalid and therefore putting workers' um, employment in danger. There's also uh, the European Convention of Human Rights, which is an angle that lawyers are beginning to look at and talk to companies about that you know that there isn't necessarily that there is a right to strike per se but there's also a right to go about your daily business as a commuter etc to use so-called vital public services so I can see 
if there's going to be industrial action over the next year, these legal arguments becoming getting flexed more and more, and more and more high court judges um, digging out their employment law. And uh, Gail, Dick Tracy earlier um, said that the unions are weak now, and so if there's to be a battle with the government, you just can't win. Is he right? No, the union premium is still very, very high indeed. Unionised workplaces are safer workplaces. Unionised work, workplaces have uh, better terms and conditions of employment, uh, fewer dismissals for pregnancy-related reasons. Um, no, the union premium is still very, very high. Uh, and, you know, I think that um, the, uh, you know, employers turning to legislation to thwart uh, a frustrated workforce and look at the turnout in the BA ballots and the vast majority in favour of action. You know, that was a frustrated workforce and during the course of the dispute it became a bullied and intimidated workforce. But it, it's a first-class business. Um, you know, who wouldn't want to fly BA? And it's just great that now the machismo managers, management stepped down, uh, a good resolution has been negotiated and I'm really proud uh, of our members at BA uh, for achieving that. OK, well, just days now until we know how things will pan out. A whole new experience for the government and a whole new experience for a whole new generation of union leaders. Many thanks to my guests Dan Milmo, Gail Cartmill and Neil Carberry. I'm Hugh Muir and the producer of this Guardian Focus podcast was Peter Sale. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.